say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in, Hysteria Nation, to the podcast that doesn't always interview authors, but when we do, they've generally written about zombies. This is Hysteria 51. That's not even true. (laughs) He wouldn't even know. He doesn't listen. Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, we are your hosts and token fanboys today. I'm John Goforth, and this is Brent Hand. Thanks, John. And fanboys is right, because we do literally have an extra special guest today. Stop it, I'm blushing. (laughs) I promise you, not you, conspiracy bud. Cheese muffin, I love you too. Not you either, Kyle. Always the bridesmaid. Nope, nope. Tonight, we are not talking to robots. Tonight, we are talking to the author of some of our favorite books, none other than Max Brooks. So, Brent, it is time to put the robots into the corner. Nobody puts baby in a corner. (laughs) Well, today we do, baby, (laughs) because it's almost (laughs) time to chat with Mr. Max Brooks himself. Unfortunately, not the ghost of Patrick Swayze. He was unavailable. He, <laughs> we, we tried when we people. had our, our Ouija board episode, if you remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, uh, Max has a new novel out. Uh, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw this up, but is it Devolution? Devolution? I, I say Devolution. I think he, yeah, I think that's Devolution, Devolution. I think it's one of those things. So I it's Evolution it with a D on it, De- fair listener. So I and, looked it uh, up online and people just using that word, not about the book, said it both ways. And I think it, it's accepted. And if not, yell at us because you will either, you will anyway. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. You will. We know that. And it's a it's a really fun take on the big Bigfoot genre. Well, well, the fictional Bigfoot genre. Do we need to say that because there's the horror genre, not the fictional horror genre? <laughs> well, I guess snuff films, but that, <laughs> like, uh, that hey, hey, I'm sure there are some of those that aren't fictional. But That's what hey, I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> it it also follows the style he sort of uh, I don't know created that that style that he certainly put a stamp on in in World War Z. I I think uh, I think the best way to kind of characterize that style is. You know, when you think about movies, you think about found footage. Yeah, I hate found to footage. pigeonhole him into that because it's definitely his own style and it is very different, but that is a good way to say it. And he does a fantastic job of telling stories through the eyes of other people. And that's what he's a master of. I think it's easy to right. say it. That's right. And and as we mentioned, it's not his first rodeo. Uh, you're all familiar with World War Z. Uh, if you listen to if this not, podcast. It's just shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly shame on your uh, parents a, actually for not doing a better job <laughs> we want to talk to them it, it, it is a wonderful book and movie brent um that we have argued probably ad nauseum about on this podcast yeah, it's one of my favorite books and you really love the movie and that is about the only thing they have in common is the name so i had a hard time getting past that now that's that's the one thing we don't disagree on we 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 don't disagree i i, I will fully and wholeheartedly admit that the movie has Little to nothing to do right. with the book. Yeah, that I was just my enjoy both. point, and you were more willing to to just enjoy. But there's so much more to Max than just a few monster books, and he's had a lot. He's also dabbled with 
uh, vampires and in in true stories of uh, uh, the Harlem Hellfighters and things that he's talked about. But as many of you might know, or maybe you do know, but he's the son of legendary TV and film star and Bancroft and legendary, and I cannot stress enough, legendary comedy writer and director, Mel Brooks, who I had to look up. I'd never heard of him before. I apologize. <laughs> also, we surprisingly, Max got his start in showbiz as a writer for Saturday Night Live. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll make sure and ask him about that. Yeah, but back to his book, though, because that's kind of the reason we're here. He's got, like with the, we said, he's got this unique, unconventional thinking depicted in his books. And the way he attacks these stories inspired the U.S. military literally to examine how they may respond to potential crises in the future because of the way, like, when he looked at the zombie survival guide and the way that he looked at a, a apocalypse in that way. What's great, and it's kind of like something that we talked about when we did our bug out bag, is even though every situation is different, there is a lot of bleed through and a lot of the same things. Well, a lot of a lot of truths don't change, right? Like how you both suck. Whether, you know, it's a, a hurricane or a vampire, shit's going to hit the fan. You need water. <laughs> <laughs> One might need holy water, That's but why you need I bless water. everything I drink. I just piss on everything, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> the thing that I find interesting is that, that they, for years, have been talking to Max about potential future c- catastrophes, and... Here we sit in the middle of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like he was like a a soothsayer or something. He a soothsayer. The That's the you took the words out of my mouth. Absolutely. <laughs> well, but even outside of that, like you said, we've been talking about, or he's been talking to the military and stuff like this. Get this: World War Z was read and discussed by the sitting chair of the Joint Chiefs, and Brooks has been invited to speak at a variety of military engagements from naval war college to fema hurricane drills at san antonio and to the nuclear vibrant response war game and here's the thing about this brooks is saying that he got to talk to these people and the pentagon says yeah it did happen unlike most of the stories that that we say and they talk to the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and they go well i don't know what you're talking about wait you're telling me the guy that has three alien implants and has been abducted 16 times and claims that he sits nightly uh, in the tea room of the Joint Chiefs is perhaps not telling the truth? No, I'm just saying that the Pentagon is probably covering it up. That's it. You heard it here first. Hot take. It's <laughs> <laughs> the easiest way to... That's the road I'm going to go down. It is pretty cool, though, that you know everyone kind of probably assumed that Max would follow in his dad's footsteps and he... He winds up being like this military advisor and writing these kind of cool fiction books, uh, obviously way outside the 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 pantheon of what his parents did. Right, right. A totally different, you know, he's never even once had to open a can of Perrier, salt-free canned air, you know, because that's that's just space balls. Uh, but everyone that we talk to, another thing is it makes me feel like I'm a, a schlub because their resume is so much better than mine. Tell us about the rest about some of the crap he's been up to. Well, he currently balances his work as a novelist and speaker with his dual fellowships at the. All right. So this is going to get wordy. The Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Modern War Institute at West Point. I celebrate all of their pamphlets. <laughs> In other words, he's a speaker at West Point. Uh, <laughs> as an analyst and columnist, he has written about national security subjects such as automation, weapons procurement and cyber warfare, just to name a few. 
Together with his colleagues from the Modern Warfare Institute, Brooks has co-edited two books on teaching military science through science fiction. Uh, Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Con- Hola, David and me, I'm O'Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. I, that, I I just thought romance languages yeah. was the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone, and we actually are users. David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it. So it's very high on pronunciation too. So <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to speak. And you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> in that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it, they design it for long-term retention, you know, it, and yeah. uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do. And then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by experts for 30 years and, there's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm-hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And I don't know if you can know this, but I'm all about value and you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused. Or really cool. <laughs> I have to go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use, and we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we want to do this long term, and uh, it's something that uh, it works, you know. And we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this, and this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now, right now. Get now. started. For Larry, limited time, his Air 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. How much? 50%. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life. Wow. Redeem, redeem, redeem. How do they do it? Rashate, you're oh. 50% off. <laughs> Rashate. <laughs> redeem it. 50% off rosettastone.com slash today. Do it today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan, 
for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria. $45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Conflict. Now, I, I would have taken the Star Trek That's why uh, he's successful angle. and you're not, but keep going. I'm <laughs> uh, just on this stupid podcast. Uh, and Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. I, I have not read that, and I want to. Oh, man, yeah. How he talks about the pros and cons and, uh, of White Walkers and the military-industrial complex is just amazing. I haven't read it either. I'm just throwing out I think words. He's, I think he words, speaks a little, words, too, words. A little spook, too unkindly of the Dothraki. <laughs> what were they? The Dothraki something riders. Death Riders? Death Riders. Uh, I don't remember it. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. You know, it's just like any other TV show you watch, you watch it, and you're like, oh, my God, that was amazing. I don't remember anything that just happened. Hey, when the Dothraki <laughs> lit all their swords on fire and went to fight the dead and all the swords extinguished in the distance, that was a badass scene that you couldn't even see. I loved it. I don't know if you uh, got that far into Game of Thrones. It was towards the end. but uh, Oh, I finished it, yeah. Well, that was it. one of the redeeming scenes from the last season because, ooh, it went down a road I didn't enjoy too much, but hey, I digress. I, you know, I don't know. You know what I hated? I think we talked about this on the show before, but I hated the, um, I forget the name of the, of the episode, but it was the huge battle where it all took place at night. And the entire episode, I couldn't, I, I yeah. was watching at night and I couldn't tell what the hell was going on. Yep. Yeah. It was too dark. It was just so dark. We're doing things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sword clatter, sword clatter. Yeah. We're doing things. <laughs> That's right. Well, Brent, he did. He, that's. I'm not done. Uh, oh. He also wrote uh, what many believe to be the definitive book on. Get this, Minecraft. Uh, the book's called Minecraft: The Island. Yeah, he's got so many irons in the fire. I, um, I, I'm incredibly lazy compared to that. And uh, one, one could argue that the most important iron he has in the fire is appearing on uh, a certain World of the Weird podcast. I'm sure that this has been on the top of his to-do list for the last week or two he probably went he knows that he's going to be on camera with us uh just for us to see so i'm sure he went out and got a you know shave and a haircut and new duds two bits mm-hmm. it just do you think sense. that he'll kind of do you think he'll just call it a day after he's on the show it's like okay well that was the That's penultimate. My 2020 i think i peaked so <laughs> but the other he's not the only though john he's not the only man of the hour that we're going to talk about or i guess you could say woman if you've read the book or beast i should say because we're also here talking about what he talks about in his newest book bigfoot uh sasquatch skunk ape choose your name of choice your uh your nom de plume but that doesn't really fit there but yeah so for those of you who are unfamiliar with bigfoot somehow uh, Bigfoot's a large, hairy, human-like creature believed by some people to exist in the northwestern United States and western Canada. Actually, if you're unfamiliar, go back and listen to episode 71 of this podcast and shut the hell up. That is true. And you can even <laughs> probably go back and listen to our Yeti because uh, we did a two-parter on Yeti and, and the uh, climbing of Mount Everest and things like that. And yeah. There's going to yeah. be a little bit of... of crossover with those we've definitely episodes. we've definitely covered this cryptid fairly well on this podcast uh though 
Seabot, let's go ahead and not tell the listeners to shut the hell up. <laughs> this is a, and oh by the way this is a podcast so they can't talk back well they can all they like they i'm sure they scream at us a lot of times anyway especially when, I, when i'm going <laughs> i like, would what, what, what is that called what is the name of them they're like you stupid son of a bitch it's blah 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 i know i mean i don't want to give away my cards here but uh, sometimes when i go back and listen to episodes and and you're off on some tangent i yell at the at the radio as well yeah like god why don't i let him talk more i i have this weird feeling deep down in my my soul i i that's Stacy, we need to talk. That's not what I was saying at, at all. Uh, well, what we are saying is that uh, we should probably actually shut up and let the guy get on here because he's why everyone's here to listen, not to you and I. Does that sound like that's a plan? probably true. All right, so we're going to go to break, and when we come back, Max Brooks. Yeah, that's coming up next on Hysteria 51. Uh, uh, uh. And we are back. And Brent, as we mentioned before the break, we are joined by uh, one of both of our favorite authors. Uh, we've talked about at least one of his works more than once on, on this podcast, and we're looking forward to talking about his new new one tonight. Welcome into the show, Max Brooks. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It is good to be here over the internet. <laughs> so Certainly socially distanced. And wow, what a what a what probably a, a good place to start. Having written numerous uh, <laughs> numerous books uh, regarding uh, uh, viruses, it's called documentaries, that the- John. It's called documentaries. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> that it, that had spread around the world. Um, I, I do you have a uh, a, a, t- a take a a thought? Is it just is it mind blowing to see uh, uh, fantasy become reality when we talk about the pandemic? You know, the problem is with this pandemic, it it's nothing new. And and certainly my books didn't predict the future. They didn't predict this sure. because all I did was study the the patterns of pandemic because they do tend to come in very predictable patterns. Because the thing is, times change, but we don't. You know, we're, we're still people and it doesn't matter where what era we're living in. Our psychology tends to react the same way. You know, we go through denial. Well, I can't get it. And then we tip over to panic. Oh, God, I need toilet paper. Um, And then eventually, hopefully, we pull our heads out and we get done what needs to be done. Hopefully so. We're uh, we're still waiting on that from a portion of the country, but it's coming. It is interesting, though, just like you say, like people are so predictable. And uh, I don't know if that's, that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a bad thing right now. So, Max, um, before we we spend too much time on it, I'm sure you've been asked uh, enough, uh, plenty of questions about your family. But I, I am curious because you you hear different stories from various folks who grew up with uh, um, with parents in the arts, whether they spent a lot of time around said arts. Was yours one where you were um, younger when you obviously a lot younger uh, uh, on set uh, much, or were you more uh, stayed away from the set and focused on other things? No, I, I watched uh, I. I spent a lot of time on the set, which took all the glitz and the glamour away. You know, when you go to, when you grow up in a movie set, it's not exciting. You, you know, you smell the paint and the lights are hot and people get into uncomfortable makeup and costumes. And then they have to say their, their lines, which could be maybe one line. And then they have to do it over and over and over again. And it is a, it, it is a grind. And that's what I grew up around is an army 
of professionals from electricians to carpenters to hair and makeup to cinematography. Uh, and then they would all come together and they would grind every day like any other job. Uh, and then it would go out into the world. So then other people could say, wow, that looks so exciting. That must have informed your, you later in life as to you know, the amount of work put in to, to get a solid and finished product out there. And, and boy, you, you've certainly done so. Uh, one thing in doing some research for our, for our chat today, I did not know about you. I didn't realize that you'd been a writer on SNL. I, yes, I did. I got the job and uh, it was very exciting. And I flew to New York and uh, started working. And I thought, my God, this is amazing. September 10th, 2001. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. wow. Talk about diving yeah, feet first. Yeah, timing. Wow. We were the class of 9-11. Uh, me and Seth Myers and, and a bunch of other guys all coming up at the exact same time. Holy cow. Uh, it was a powerful moment because it was also a moment where I got to be at the cultural ground zero and watch us hand the mantle of American current events to Jon Stewart. Oh, yeah. Well, it was such a weird time, too. I mean, you're, you're working in comedy, and you're in a time when no one wants to laugh, or you don't know what you can laugh at. Well, that was the thing, was we didn't know, and so we could have, we, we had a fork in the road. Either jump in, be brave, experiment, and deal with the backlash, which is, by the way, that's called comedy. Right. <laughs> right. Or you stick with the 1990s pre 9-11 model. Be safe. Just do pop culture. Stay away from current events. Act like nothing was wrong, which, by the way, that's what almost everyone did. Yeah. You know, if you watch Friends, which took place in New York, 9-11 never happened. Right. Yeah. Most pop, if you look at the top 40 songs of 2001, 9-11 never happened. Yeah. So we went with the herd. But America was clearly hungry to process what was happening. And so this other scrappy, courageous guy with balls of adamantium named Jon Stewart jumped into the arena and became an icon and rightfully so. It couldn't couldn't agree more. I, I you know, it, going back to the SNL, um, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, was the first – I kind of remember it being a touchstone moment. SNL coming back on the air was was Rudy Giuliani on there and uh, yeah. and and the the firemen and yeah, I, I do remember that. That must have been um, playing it safe or no. That must have been incredible just to just to witness, just to be around, just to be a part of. Oh yeah, no, we were, we were there, and and there was Giuliani, and then Paul Simon he sang, and people cried, and we were back, and then we did a sketch about I think fish genitals. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. And we're back. You're in my safe spot now. <laughs> so it's definitely a, a, a transition you've made, you know, uh, from, uh, I mean, writing is writing, but I'm sure comedy sketch writing is is different than um, than novel and fictional writing. What what propelled you? What what inspired you to move from one to the other? What, what was the genesis of your uh, of your career getting into the more fictional uh, realm? John, I'm a novelist. I've always been a novelist. I wrote my first novel when I was 14 years old. Uh, wow. But uh, writing sketch comedy was was being miscast. And if you want to really dig into my heritage, you know, it almost killed my career before it even started because there were so many people around me expecting Mel Brooks Jr. Yeah, I was going to say, did you feel like people are like, okay, you need to go write comedy? Go do it. Well, they felt it. I never felt it. I always knew who I was. I was never 
doubted for a moment who I was and what I wanted to be. I knew since I was a little kid, but the challenge was then having to prove that real self to the world because my first book, Zombie Survival Guide, was almost uh, murdered because they tried to position it as a comedy book. Oh, huh. wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you know, I actually wrote it in the 90s and stuck it in a drawer. Uh, and really? Yeah. Yeah. Because I wrote it as a response to Y2K way before I ever got the SNL job. Oh, but when, wow. Okay. And when it came out, my publisher said, well, we're going to position this as a comedy book, right? Because you're Mel Brooks's kid. You won an Emmy for Saturday Night Live. So clearly this book is making fun of that genre. And I said, absolutely not. This is. This is a book about how to fight something. It may not be real, but it's written deadly serious with right. real research, by the way, with yeah. a very simple point. What if they were? How would you really fight that? And I'm sorry if I'm too much of a weirdo and a loser to spend that much time thinking about this, but I am who I am. This book is what it is. And if you try to position it as anything but that, you will fail. And we did. Uh, we got slammed from both sides. <laughs> because the, the the traditional media, you know, like the LA Times, they were like, this is the least funny book ever. So <laughs> I was like, yes! Yeah, he gets it! <laughs> and and the horror community, who didn't know who I was, they assumed that Mel Brooks' spoiled brat was taking a giant dump on everything that they hold near and dear. Yeah. Right. So then I had to spend the next few years trying to market myself. And like going to Fangoria Radio with Dee Snyder and Debbie Rashawn, God bless them. And then starting to do actual zombie uh, talks, lectures, zombie survival lectures around the country. And I, I'm sure you're not, you're not looking for anyone's pity, but that must've been very tough to crawl out from under that shadow and establish yourself as I'm something different. Uh, stop with your expectations and let me just show you who I am. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, I honestly had bigger problems than that uh, because I grew up with dyslexia. Which is, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about it, but, and now they call it a learning difference, but it was a disability. It was classified as a learning disability when I was a kid. And let me tell you, it sure as hell felt like one because the whole world was learning in a certain way. And for the most part still does the industrial Prussian model, memorize, regurgitate, ticking clock. Couldn't do that. So I'm working 10 times as hard and flailing and crying and throwing my books against the wall and my teachers thinking I'm lazy and also thinking because I'm Mel Brooks and I'm Bancroft's kid that I must just be a brat who doesn't want to do the work. Uh, so my mother, thank God, had me diagnosed and on her own developed an entire learning accommodation program for me. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Did yeah, I read I, that she, she actually stopped working for a while specifically to, to, to help you through that? She had to. Her, her kid was, was not succeeding in school and getting more and more frustrated. And, you know, this is the problem. Kids with learning disabilities, if you don't catch it early and start to build them back up, the, uh, the emotional damage, the psychological damage, that's what they carry with them the rest of their lives. So my mom got right in there and did things like taking my books that I had to read to the Institute for the Blind, the Braille Institute, had them read on audio cassette so I could listen. Uh, oh, wow. Because my handwriting was atrocious, she had me take a typing course. Because somehow she knew computers were the wave of the future in like 1981. <laughs> and made and yelled at my teachers every year, came in just, you know, using that full dramatic actress talent that she has, to make sure that my tests were untimed. 
to reduce the anxiety so I could think. Uh, So, you know, when you've been struggling your entire academic career, when every day is a struggle, uh, you're used to that. So getting out there and having to prove myself is no different than having to prove to my teachers that I'm not an idiot and I'm not a brat. Yeah, fair enough. I suppose uh, perspective is a is a is a very valuable thing to have um, when uh, when up against adversity. And and uh, speaking of adversity, <laughs> uh, zombies are an adversity. And and you've you've obviously done more than one project involving zombies. Is it is it uh, for me my favorite? Uh, fictional uh, monster is a zombie. I, we've talked, we've done episodes on it. We, we've talked about it a lot on the show. Um, and so that's why I was really excited to, to be able to chat with you today. It, what is it about the zombie genre, the zombie, the, the monster itself? Uh, what is it that drew you uh, to it versus, I mean, there's, there's plenty of things. Out Initially there. they just scared the crap out of me. I was a little kid and, and you guys <laughs> probably know more than you probably will, will help me out on this. When I was about 12 or 13 and you remember what it was like, when um now you're you're younger than me i'm guessing i'm 48 yeah i'm 40 all right well when i was about 12 or 13 we had something called cable television and all i wanted to do was try and sneak into my parents room to watch the cable television hopefully there'll be a shot of booze because that was when (laughs) the pg-13 rating came out which means that girls would just take their tops off for no reason (laughs) Uh, had nothing to do with the plot they just threw it in and here's a boob Right. So I'm trying to watch and suddenly there's a, a a hot woman and she's way naked. And I thought, Oh, thank you. It's it's real. (laughs) Turns out I was watching an Italian cannibal zombie movie. Oh, which are just fantastic. Some of them, but Oh my God. You know the one I'm talking about. Remember the, the, the Italian commandos, they go to New Guinea. Oh, yes. 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 Okay. Well, and there's a scene where I don't know whether she's uh, an anthropologist or the scientist's daughter somewhere. They go to the village and she goes, okay, I know these people. Trust me, I'll, I'll get in there and I'll, and I'll do some detective work. And apparently she had to do her detective work completely naked. As one's to do. It's, you know, you yes. win in Rome. <laughs> That's when I tuned in. So I tuned into that scene and then suddenly here come these grody flesh-eating ghouls coming in and killing everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually edited in, I'm pretty sure they edited in real cannibal footage. Oh, wow. So, yeah, when you see that, that kind of, I think, leaves a mark. Yeah. And so from that point on, I was terrified because that didn't obey the rules of every other monster. Every other monster, you got to go looking for trouble. Yeah. You know, hey, let's get drunk and go swimming naked in the water at, after midnight. You know, I'm sorry. That's your ass. I'll be back. Yeah, yeah, right. I'll be right back. Yeah. You know, you gotta you gotta make a bad choice in horror films. Right. Uh, well, team, we didn't actually wake up on Earth. We got a distress signal from a planet. We got to go investigate. Okay, Dallas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Why don't we just keep going? Maybe maybe let's we just keep going. That. Whereas zombies, you could be minding your own business, and they're everywhere. I also right. think one of my favorite things about the the slow zombie, the shambling like you you wrote about, you know, and you see in a lot of things. And there's fast zombies, there's slow zombies, there's fast zombies and you know World War Z the movie, but I always thought that the shambling just sheer numbers like no matter what there's millions of them. It's the slow terrifying. force of nature. Yeah, it's just yeah. terrifying. It, it's like it's like the waves of the ocean. No matter what you do, you're not going to fight it back. That's a poetic way of discussing it. No, I, I agree with you. Because remember that scene in Dawn of the Dead where they're in the chopper 
and they get away from Philly. And in the morning, uh, Scott Reiniger wakes up and he looks down and he says, Jesus, it's everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So as a kid, I thought, how the hell do I fight this? And then I saw a movie, ironically, that gave me hope, which was Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Right. Because Night of the Living Dead, you know, the Italian movies are all about doom. It's all like, oh, no, oh, Marcello, here they come. And then you die. Whereas. <laughs> violently. Yes, yeah. violently. Whereas Night of the Living Dead, there were ways to survive if you mm. made the right choices. And yeah. so I spent years thinking, what are the choices? What are the right moves? Well, that's interesting, too. And it's another thing. When you look at those movies and then compare it to to your books, a lot of them have these these societal issues then you know if people would work together it's a look inward almost as it is at these monsters and that's something that's the brilliance of romero too yeah i mean well his is all social of of him is just political and everything yeah very but so many folks look at it and they just think you know campy zombie they don't they like they don't give it the 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 lens through which they should be viewing it no, and this and this is what I found in in my travels through the halls of think government think tanks, military think tanks, academia. Uh, you know, I know I've met a lot of smart people and a lot of dumb people, and I can tell you that dumb don't can't recognize smart no matter where it is, and smart can recognize smart wherever it is, and if you're the kind of person that can watch Dawn of the Dead. And not understand that this is one of the most biting social commentaries about the baby boomer generation, then you're an idiot. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you could take Jean-Luc Godard and Andy Warhol and all those other pretentious fops and distill their entire essence, pull it all out like in the dark crystal, and it would not equal one frame of Dawn of the Dead. That's awesome. But, Amen. Yeah. Amen. You've you found friends here. <laughs> So you've done the you you've done zombies you've done vampires and zombies you so fringe like we we're talking about is is nothing new for you but but, but once quick, quick you, you you just hit on it Brent it was one thing I wanted to ask about uh there, there was an episode of uh, and, and Max correct me on this there was an episode of um that warrior show deadliest warrior deadliest warrior, deadliest warrior deadliest that warrior. you that you were on and yeah. it was vampires versus zombies. And it was such an enjoyable episode. I didn't love every episode of that uh, of that show. That episode was uh, was was really really well done. Well, you know that was a great show because they put me up against. I was team zombie, and they put me up against Steve Niles, who is also a genius and also thinks very clearly and deeply. Uh, and so, what began as sort of a simple laboratory experiment about sort of biting versus scratching. Yeah. Uh, we really dug into it about the mass psychology because we discovered that if that fundamentally you're not talking about predator versus predator, you're talking about predator versus plague. Uh, A vampire is a saber tooth cat, whereas a zombie is Ebola. So it's not a fair fight. It's two completely different forces of nature. And you can only have that when you've got a guy like Steve Niles really breaking this down. It's hard to fight a, I mean, I guess it's an easy way to say it. It's hard to fight an enemy when there is no remorse, no fear, no uh, tiring, no no anything. reasoning. Yeah, no reason. You can't you can't 
outthink them because they're not thinking. You can't outthink them. But yeah, it's a completely, I've never thought of it as like that. Yeah, too, like a a disease, but that's exactly what it is. And those are the horror films that always scared me the most as a kid. You know, that was Jaws. When, when Richard Dreyfuss says, all this thing does is swim and eat and make little sharks, and that's it. Oh, shit. And also, what I consider to be a horror film is Terminator. To me, that's not a, that's not a science fiction film. That's straight-up horror. And when Michael Bean says, that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, and there's very few times when you can have things like that, and that's, you know, like you said, the robot, uh, the, the Terminator, zombies, there's only so much. Even when you had your vampires versus zombies, the vampires are only acting because the food source is gone. Or, or well, that's the, that's the same reason that I was so terrified of Runaway. I mean, uh, Gene Simmons, also yeah. an unstoppable, <laughs> unreasonable force. In, in all seriousness, that movie did... That movie did scare the shit out of me when I was oh, a kid. Oh god, when we were kids and and I, you know, I'm a little younger than all my cousins, so I wasn't a Kiss fan and I didn't know that that was Gene Simmons. I just saw this really creepy dude with that stare. <laughs> <laughs> with 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 the acid spiders and they were trying to kill Magnum PI and Run Magnum, run. Yeah. Well, and oh that's the god. that's the funny part. Most of the time when when musicians try to do something different in movies, especially if they try to p- play a, a bad guy, they just get exposed as being musicians in a movie. Right. This just exposed that Gene Simmons truly is creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's scary without like, the It's makeup. real. Yeah. So big, big jump, though, now into the, the cryptid world. And you know, like you said, this is a different type. This isn't the zombie. These are creatures that you really fleshed out this whole uh, feeling of their world you know they're they're thinking they're calculating they have this hierarchy you know where they're there's the alpha which was a female in, in this and things like what what drew you to that idea and the 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 whole you know idea of bigfoot in the pacific northwest you know i've i've always been scared of bigfoot always and i always write for me i don't know how to write for an audience uh, I just know how to write about things that fascinate and terrify me. And what I try to do in all my work, you know, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, zombies or Bigfoot or even Minecraft, you know, I, I try to write about the big stuff. And this goes back to what we were talking about before about smart versus dumb. And, you know, I found one of the big problems we have in society is how to get people like me to think about the big stuff. You know, the, how, how to wonder about how to solve real crises. Well, I found the best way to do it is to write about a fictional threat with factual solutions and steep it in reality and research and real facts the way Tom Clancy did with Red October or Star Trek did, that it was real science fiction. Good science fiction is real science. And so I thought, how do I write a book about being over-reliant on technology, about not respecting nature, about not being ready for crisis. You know, because if I just lecture people, you freaking, you piss them off, you scare them away, you put them to sleep. But So instead, I'm going to put all these thoughts and these, these facts in the vessel of my childhood terror, which is Bigfoot. And so I'm going to have an eco-community of telecommuters in the Cascade Mountains who think that they can live with all the comforts of the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the middle of the wilderness. You know, they can tap on their phones and the drones will deliver the groceries and the solar panels and, and everything's wonderful. 
until Mount Rainier erupts. And this 21st century model community is reduced to a medieval village and winter's coming. Yeah. You really focused on how, how ill-prepared your average person is for real outdoors for real um, threat as far as that goes, because people, and I I love how you even talked about in the book, you talked about these people like they're connecting with nature. You're not connecting with nature. You're connecting with a a, a civilization in the middle of nature. And then when you actually have to connect, you can't because you don't know how. And the average person now doesn't know how, because it's been gone for generations. Right. And that's what I was trying to do. Max, I have to, I have to read you some of your own words because they were, so I, I, I'm sure someone has brought this to your attention if you hadn't noticed it yourself. Well, I'll just read it. Uh, if everything hadn't conspired to combine the greatest national unrest since Rodney King with the greatest natural calamity since Katrina, if everything had gone exactly according to plan, we still wouldn't have found Green Loop, et cetera, et cetera. You, you were literally setting the stage for huge national unrest, huge, huge natural disaster. Boy, that sound that that sounds eerily similar to something going on in the yeah, world. How many right fingers now. do you still have open on your monkey paw? Because that's oh, I guess the big question. <laughs> you know, I this is what I do. I study real crisis. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a senior non-resident fellow at these two think tanks, the Modern War Institute at West Point and the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. And I study crisis. I study how things fall apart. I've also worked with the Blue Ribbon Biodefense Panel which is trying to get us ready for the next generation of germ terrorists. So studying all this makes me understand how fragile systems are. You know, systems that you and I have grown up with and take for granted, like vaccines and indoor plumbing and sanitation and electricity, all these things that our grandparents and great-grandparents fought really freaking hard to build. And we don't even know how they work anymore. So studying collapse is pretty much my, you know, my mission in life and how to prevent it. I mean, it really was uh, foretelling. I mean, the fact that you combined the two, uh, would you, the re you, you obviously, um, you know, civil unrest combined with a natural disaster. That's what we're going through right now. Yeah. yeah. Is it in, in your opinion from studying all these things? Is I, I listen, George Floyd didn't happen because of the pandemic. Right. But at the same time, d- does civil unrest, is it is it a product sometimes of or maybe maybe it worsening? I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'm conflating yeah. the two things. I'm just I'm trying to ask the question of does one have to do with the other? Of course, they're all connected. This was the first lecture I ever gave at the United States Naval War College after they had been reading World War Z was everything is connected. Uh, if massive events like riots or wars don't just spontaneously happen. There are trends bubbling under the surface. It's like Rodney King would not have happened if not for 12 years of Reagan and Bush policies towards the inner cities, coupled with the early 90s recession, uh, because, because recessions always give people anger and frustration and angst and free time. So just like now, you know, cops have been have been brutalizing black people for a very, very long time. Most people didn't notice uh, because we were all too busy doing something else. Certainly white America didn't notice. Yeah. Amen. When there's a pandemic and we're all sitting at home and nobody can go to work. And then this happens, there's time to see it and think about it and talk about it and really 
let it sink in and say, Process. holy shit, this is fucking bullshit, man. You're supposed to protect and serve. So these, this would not have happened otherwise. So yeah, you have first a biological crisis, the plague, COVID-19, coupled with economic crisis, which it is caused, which then gives rise to social unrest, which is then all manipulated from a national security point of view by other countries. I was saying, you know, right, right now, everything we're going through, we have to ask ourselves, who does this benefit? When we divide ourselves and we fight amongst ourselves and we weaken ourselves and we don't believe in science, uh, we lose who wins. Because I guarantee you on this planet somewhere, there are winners. Other than Charlie Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is it's hard for people to get out of their own tunnel vision and out of their way of knee-jerk reactions to these things to see what you're talking about, which is that things funnel down. This is not new. Nothing that's happening is new. The pandemic we can say is, but that's just the, the kickoff point to these things happening, but it's so much easier to blame little things, the, the, the outcomes instead of the instigator. Yes. Yeah, the pan- well, the pandemic's the incendiary device, but the right. I mean, the the the, the work the the groundwork had been laid for for a number of, of years. Max, as you so poignantly said. And so then, how do you, how do we talk about it? How do we how do we educate ourselves? Well, the problem is, I've found too many educators don't know how to educate. Right? They're all they're they've all got their heads up their asses. They're all in this intellectual incest circle jerk, and they don't know how to communicate these ideas to people like you and me. That's where pop culture should come in. That's where horror, science fiction, comedy, that should be the great educator. Because I don't know about you guys, like I think I'm a pretty well-educated dude, but I learned a hell of a lot more about macroeconomics from Chris Rock's one joke about rich versus wealthy than I ever did in any classroom. Remember when Chris Rock goes, no, 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 I'm not talking about rich, talking about wealthy. Shaq is rich, the white man who signs his paycheck, that's wealthy. And you're like, I get it. Thank you, Chris Rock. Well, and the thing that you do is like you're talking about with George yes. A. Romero is you write these books, you 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 come up with these stories, and people, like you said, you God forbid they don't, they're learning watching them without realizing it. They're not oh realizing that it's yeah. a social, you know, you're looking at society through this lens and you're learning, but really you're watching a horror movie. Right. Or reading a horror book, and that's what's fantastic. And then you can go, "Oh, I did learn something." I mean, how many of us right now are comparing what's happening to Jaws? Right? How many of us are comparing our government to the mayor in Jaws? Yeah. Like, no, no, the beaches are open. Amity means friendship. Spend your money. <laughs> but that's how it should work. We should all go. We watch a movie. We have a great time, and then on the on the drive home, we go. Oh yeah, you know that was interesting. You, as you said, John, you have time to process. You have time to let it sink in. I think both you, Brent, and Max, um, uh, uh, bring up a good point about about how we learn these lessons through the lens of of sci fi and through. You know, I, I I think comic books are are radically undersold for oh, for yeah. also being a great lens for these things and telling these stories in really poignant and amazing ways. When you know, people think of comic books, they they think of I don't know. If, uh, well, uh, I'm too deep into it to, to know what they think of, but they they don't they take them lightly, and I think there's a there's a lot of depth in there that people that people miss. And um, 
And, and the same can be said for sci-fi, whether it be uh, 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 the written word or, or on television or in movies. I mean, I was listening to Tom Hanks the other day. He mentioned, he talked about how we all, himself included, learned how to speak mm-hmm. about the Navy and, and naval battles through Star Trek. Right. You know, take, take the con. Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, ensign and just like these yep. basic terminology that, that no one would know. Otherwise, uh, Tom Hanks, and th- you're talking about Tom Hanks, who, who makes war movies for a living at this point. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I just, I, I thought that was, that was really poignant. But, and I'm so glad you uh, mentioned comic books because I think that that is an art form that we as a country used to do very well to educate and we need to get back to. And, you know, that's actually starting the U.S. Army's cyber warfare lab is starting to do comic books about what future conflicts might look like. And they're doing it through comic books. Uh, when I worked for the biodefense panel, we thought, how the hell are we going to educate the public about the history of germ warfare? So we put out a comic book, which you can actually look on. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, it's for free. And it's germ warfare graphic history. I have a comic book from the 90s made by DC, printed in English and Cyrillic, where Superman teaches kids from the former Yugoslavia about how to watch for landmines. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Genius. Genius. Well, really and then you, you know, you've worked, you know, you've done your work, the Harlem Hellfighters, and you're telling stories about real stories through that medium. You know, it, it's, it's just a, a fantastic way. Did you even work. do a GI Joe? Yeah. I did. I did GI Joe hearts and minds because I thought, well, going back to my central premise of all my books, what if this was real? What if G.I. Joe was a real unit? Because it was okay in the 80s to have Yojo because that was the Reagan era when we weren't really at war. We could sort of mentally masturbate to the machismo of war. But (laughs) now when I wrote G.I. Joe, we were involved in two really horrible wars. And you can't just do this Yojo shit anymore. So I made it real. And the real psychology of what would make these people join and also what motivates Cobra. What makes a terrorist? So I've always tried to do that. Now, John does have the, the globe and anchor tattoo on his chest, like gung ho though. So he's a little touchy when people <laughs> talk about about GI Joe. It, it's why I don't wear white t-shirts, but that's another story for another day. Um, Although, and, wait and, a minute, wait, uh, guys, did you, uh, what time <laughs> who here remembers the episode of GI Joe, the cartoon where a Cobra agent, I think it's Zartan masquerades as a senator and cuts gi joe's defense funding oh wow (laughs) i didn't remember it till the moment you just said it that's awesome yeah (laughs) powerful oh that's how funny is that of course he ruined it when he yelled cobra right after they voted so uh (laughs) uh-oh well it's like in the marvel movies where you know gary shandling is is not exactly being um, for a yeah. private, yeah, de- deceivious. When, when talking about Hydra, like you know, there's yeah. microphones all around him. He's like, "Hail Hydra!" Like, yeah, you no, know, everybody just heard that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So this book is a huge undertaking for research, and like you said, you do a ton of research. Yeah. How much did you look into how? you know primates and apes live and 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 you know how uh if there was this great ape how they would be living and what their society would be like because that was fascinating how you really really fleshed out through just the the experiences that the people were were seeing how these things communicated and lived and 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 had their hierarchy yeah that was my compass needle was what if sasquatch was real not a supernatural force uh what if it was just a species of great ape living in North America 
descended from the Pleistocene great ape Gigantopithecus black ape from Asia, and they had come across the Bering Sea land bridge. Uh, so I had to study real primatology. So Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall were as important to me as uh, Grover Krantz or Jeff Meldrum. Yeah. So I had to study how they, how the different species eat and how they fight with each other. What makes them dangerous? What's their power structures? Which I think a lot of people don't realize how, how really dangerous and, and vicious oh, yeah. know, chimpanzees and, and some of those animals are. Um, and how oh my God. much bloodlust they have. The, as as you either have read or will read in the book, there's some very gory moments yes. when these creatures do some very gory things to us. I did not make any of that up. That is exactly what chimpanzees do to colobus monkeys. And I've actually watched documentary footage of it happening in real time. So I did not have to invent any of that violence. Right. You know, and it was amazing. And you think about this too. They and you talked about this in the book. One of the the areas where, you know, chimpanzee is so much stronger than a man, and then you have <laughs> a, a gorilla that's so much stronger than that. Now take a gorilla and make it three times as large, and yeah. you know, make it eleven hundred pounds and eight feet tall, and and how just strong. And I love to you know some of the imagery you talked about when they would grab people or and just sling them around like a doll. You know, and it's so crazy to think that if that was, you probably understated how they would actually have been, you know, and, and I'm not telling any stories because I want everyone to read the book, but you're, you're right. Like the payoff in the end is it's a fantastic book and it goes hardcore, you know, your, your, your horror movie there at the end. And it's amazing. Like the last, well, that's why I, I don't put anything in there to be gratuitous. Everything in there's right. got to be based for a reason. And so uh, I had to study literally the, the strength, the pounds per square inch of the bite of, say, a gorilla multiplied by what we now think is the skull size of Gigantopithecus. How powerful would that bite be? How powerful would be their arms? And could they rip us apart? And then how do you kill something that before it kills you? Yeah. That's a great question. And, and that's fantastic. And the other thing was, too, um, they don't, we hadn't messed with them until this disaster flushed them out they lost their food and it was just this comedy of errors that that led them to to where they are do you think there could be a a large primate like that out there or is this just a thought experiment like i i know everything is a thought experiment but did would you put a 50 50 60 40 zero percent chance on something like that being real i don't know about the odds but i will say after doing the research that i did i'm now open to the possibility of it because, you know, of all the monsters that I'm into and I've studied, scientifically, some simply just cannot exist. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, they thought the Loch Ness Monster was a plesiosaur. Yeah. We know now that plesiosaurs are or were air-breathing dinosaurs. So if there was a plesiosaur in Loch Ness or a family of them, you wouldn't see them every few months. You'd see them every few minutes coming up for air. <laughs> so they cannot exist. You know, At worst, every half hour. Yeah. Right? <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all time is Them, the giant ant movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, giant ants simply cannot exist as they are if you were just to grow them magically. Uh, Excuse me. Rick Moranis disagrees, but go ahead. (laughs) Their, Their exoskeletons are too heavy. They would collapse under their own weight and they would die of suffocation because they don't have lungs. When you there's a reason we don't have giant insects because insects don't have lungs. And therefore, insects cannot grow 
as that large because we don't have enough oxygen in the air. And there was a time when there was more oxygen in the air and we, we found fossils of larger insects. That's really so, what dictated the size of this, the, the animals that we had. Another thing yes. was just the earth was just saturated in oxygen and, right. and things could just grow and grow and grow. And so what I have studied is the ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest could feed and shelter and hide a species of great ape. I don't know if it's out there. I will believe it when I see physical evidence and not a second before, but it is theoretically possible. Well, that's a good way to look at it. It's always good to at least be scientifically. I always say I'm, I'm hopefully skeptical and not, that's not the way I say it, but you know, like you want to have at least a little bit of, of, of hope for things like that instead yes. of just saying absolutely not when at least they're, we all be. want a, a modicum of wonder right. in our life. Yeah, I of course. think that's true. And, you know, and, and I understand that, but, uh, if I'm camping in the desert in New Mexico and suddenly there's a light in the sky and I pass out and I wake up the next morning with my anus hurting, I'm not going to assume that I was abducted and anally probed by extraterrestrials until I have physical evidence to back that up. Well, I mean, if, you're, if your anus is hurting, you might actually have physical evidence, but that's another story <laughs> for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way that goes. The, now, Max, the, to, to, to finish the, the note on, on Bigfoot, you, you know, you, you've gone from zombies to Bigfoot. Is there, um, how can I say this? I, you, you, write, you said you write for yourself. Yeah. Is the next step another creature from the world of the weird? Or is it, uh, I mean, it, it could also be an uh, economic treatise on 18th century Russia. I don't know. I mean, no, what, you read what, his uh, manuscript, what, I see. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, always, it's always got to be something that's passionate for me. And hopefully it will also be um, interesting. Because as far as writing things like nonfiction, I might do that someday, but that's just not on my radar. I mean, I enjoy writing fictional books but infusing them with facts. That's, yeah. that's what excites me. And that's why it always takes so long. You know, I, there are a lot of writers that can just bang out a book every year or every year and a half, and I'm horrendously jealous of them. But it takes me years to go back to school, so to speak, and to become a student of whatever it is I'm writing about. Even something as simplistic as Minecraft. I knew that if I was going to write a Minecraft book, I was going to have to play a lot of hours and get every little thing right and then literally halfway through writing that book, they changed the game. <laughs> so, so actually, let's stop there for a second. For our listeners at home, and by when I say our listeners at home, I mean myself, who have who have knocked around in Minecraft yeah. once or twice and literally couldn't get the like I've I've been playing video games since I was born in nineteen eighty, since nineteen eighty four. Okay. So I've I've been they've been a big part of my life and they continue to be today. And Minecraft, I could is one of the few games I could not get the the oomph of mm. the, uh, the the I don't want to say the point because that, yeah. that that's belittling it. Um, but it, there there's something there that just wasn't it. it I, my dots didn't connect. Right. Help me connect the dots. Okay. For me, I'll tell you why it appealed to me. I think it is one of it has the potential to be the greatest singular mass teaching tool of the 21st century. And what I mean is, we're going to go smarty smart for a second, so strap in. The, edu <laughs> the education system that we have in this country, and, and most of the world, is based on the Prussian model, like we said before, right? You memorize, 
you regurgitate the information and you answer all questions right or wrong. And that's it. And that's because the Prussian model perfectly suited the industrial revolution, which was all about standardization. Well, as you know, not everyone's standard. Very right. Much so. Right. And so the goal was whoever could standardize the best wins the game of life. And the Prussian model was the best. And we were so good at it. We applied it to everything. We applied it to economics, you know, how we made stuff and we were great at it. Henry Ford. Uh, We applied it to education. We applied it to the military. We were so good at being Prussian. We beat the Prussians. So (laughs) the problem is that method of educating, it doesn't work anymore. And it even applied to video games, right? Most video games are, there's a right way and a wrong way to solve a problem, solve it and get promoted by going to the next level and getting points. Prussian model. That's hey, man, uh, my, one of my favorite games ever, Shadowgate for the NES. You, you, you either open the skull or you don't open yeah. the skull, but if you don't open it, there's no key. Right. That's You have to do certain things, black or white, right or wrong. And that's the Prussian model. And it doesn't work anymore out into the world because now we're living in the post-industrial age where right. information has been democratized, which means everybody's going to have to go back to being their own little shopkeeper. Everyone's going to have to become an innovator and become yeah. a problem solver. And we've seen this, this horrible example of what not to do with Japan. Remember when we were kids, the Japanese were eating us for lunch because they were great at Prussianizing, standardizing, and just being efficient. And then they realized they hit a wall and they, and they can't innovate their way out of things anymore. They're working harder than they've ever worked, but they call it the lost generation. So how do you teach kids to solve problems creatively and individually? Minecraft is perfect because Minecraft will give you a problem, right? Don't starve. Like that's a problem. You spawn on, I say on an island, like I did the first time I played. My problem, don't starve. Oh crap. You can hunt, you can fish, you can forage, you can do so many different things. And there's so many different ways to do those so many different things that one person's way of surviving is completely different than another person's. So it trains a young person's brain to think creatively. And then it's packed with all the other lessons that we need, like be patient and take things in steps, right? You got to punch a tree, get the wood, make the tools, do the tools, and then you farm. Steps. And then recover from failure because I've built entire beautiful houses in Minecraft that I've accidentally burned to the ground. Well, (laughs) you got to start again from the ground up. So uh, when I played this game with my son, I realized, holy shit, if we can make kids aware of what they're learning as they're learning it, we've got the teaching tool. And that's why when I was asked to write the Minecraft book, I thought, okay, it's going to be a person in this world, but every time they accomplish something, they learn from it. Gosh, it, it really reminds me of a book that I read. It, what you just described reminds me of the my my experience reading, um, was it The Other Side of the Mountain, My Side of the Mountain, something yes. like that? Yeah, that's a great book, great survival book. It, but it, 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 was, it was like that. It was, it was one young boy learning how to live off the land because he had no choice. And uh, that was like, that was, I guess that was the Minecraft of our generation. <laughs> but yeah. that, that, that makes a ton of sense. It really does. I, I, I think, uh, I also think too, even, um, 
Animal Crossing, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that those same less, those type of games where folks, uh, where kids, where players are forced to, um, to have the patience, but also forced to innovate. And there's not necessarily a, um, one thing follows the other type of right. storyline. Um, it's an and, open world know, design type d- thing or something op- like that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely teaches kids. I, I That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I'll, I will go back oh, I yeah. will go back and check it out. And that's why also I never, I almost never play Minecraft on the, the creative, they call it creative, because you can't die. It's too easy. Minecraft survival is the perfect way to play it because it's a metaphor for life where the sun goes down and the zombies, they don't give a shit about your feelings yeah. and they don't care if you're offended <laughs> and they don't care that your parents told you you were awesome. They're coming <laughs> to kill you and you better learn how to survive. Now, Max, you just you just put the ball on the tee for us. Uh, we know we only have you for a few more minutes. We um, wanted to uh, I, I have to bring this up because uh, we have had such passionate conversations on this podcast about it. And that is the World War Z movie. Uh, there was a movie. I am a. <laughs> uh, is that our answer? <laughs> we, it's no. There's no. There's no. Um, it's no secret that the movie went through a, a few different writers. The, the screenplay, I should say, and the the end product. I was a huge fan of. Um, Let me just say, I, I was a obvi- huge, huge fan of your book, and so I was very disappointed in the movie i think is the best way to say it and i was and and, and I, I was about to say i'm also a huge fan of the book just in, in like i don't view them as they just happen to have the same title um but i love both in different ways would love your take on it whatever you can share uh we, we, we we've talked about this enough on this podcast that having you on the podcast we can't we can't ask we can't not ask. no of course all right i'll, I'll tell you um First of all, to answer that, the, the unasked question, I was not involved. I didn't even know what they were doing until they did it. Uh, but then to answer the other questions, it was easier to watch because, than I thought it would be because my book was not even there. Yeah, that's what that's how I always said is it was in name alone. It sh- my actually thing I say on here all the time is it shared the name of your book and that was it. That was it. But the fact that it shared the name is very important because, you know, I won't lie. I had my moments, especially when I saw the the trailer and I thought, oh, my God, what the what? Uh, but then two people set me right. One was my friend, Frank Darabont, who yeah. created The Walking Dead TV show and was then fired off it. Yeah. You know, congratulations. Thank you for giving us this hit. You're fired. Um, <laughs> and Possibly one of the biggest uh, television franchises in the history of television. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And he told me, he said, he set me straight because he said, listen, if you were a screenwriter and your script had been mutilated and then, then, then shot, and then people thought that that was your script, you would, you would be justified in being upset. He said, Max, you've got your book. If anybody wonders what your original vision was just read the book they didn't ruin your book how could they ruin your book what are they going to rewrite the book no stop complaining and then he got another one of his friends to write to me and say listen the only reason any of us writers any time sell the movie rights is to bring attention to our book and if more people are reading your book because a movie came out who the hell cares what that movie has done all that matters is that people are reading your book. There you go. And that was Stephen King. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. His book on writing is my favorite book, 
period, full stop. Yeah, the man's a genius and, and I love reading him because he's so much better than me. So I don't even have to feel competitive. I just know, <laughs> you know, I just read his stuff. I go, ah, well, I'll never match that. So I can just enjoy this book. Well, and he's the, Brent, the is king. that how you feel about being on a podcast? With yeah, me? yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Full stop. <laughs> he's the king pun intended of having his work also made into movies. So, yeah. you know, that's sage like advice there. I, when I heard that they were making it into movie, I, I was so confused because of the fantastic way you collected these. Yeah. It's a collection of firsthand stories. So I'm like, how is that right. feasible? And I think we got to give, you know, I think we got to give Brad Pitt a little bit of mercy here because it is a difficult book to adapt. You know, Devolution, this, the new book, this thing reads like a movie because originally it was, I wrote it as a movie idea and I sold it to legendary and they had a, a screenwriter and a director never went anywhere. And then I got the the novel rights back and I got to write it my way, but yeah. it's still, oh, interesting. yeah. So it's all my vision. I saw you said that in, I think it was in the, the epilogue or afterwards that you, you owed them a Sasquatch size thing yes. for allowing you to, yeah, that, so do you think, I, I mean, who knows, but you think we'll see this after the book has come out and I'm, it's obviously going to be huge. Do you think we might? I don't know. I mean, I can tell you now, now legendary is very excited about the movie, which is, which how ironic is that? Yeah. Right. Um, Cause you know, they, they wrote an original script, which was so different than my original idea. I didn't shed too many tears when the project sort of fizzled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then of course my wife said like, well, why don't you do your version? Ask Thomas Tull for the novel rights back. And I did. And so then I wrote my version. Now they're like, Oh my God, come on, let's do it. But <laughs> we will see. We will. Yeah. Let, let's not get too excited. Well, I implore everyone to go read this book because it's a fantastic, uh, you know, just take it as what it is. You know, if it's, if you want to look at it as a horror story it's fantastic if you want to look at it as this cryptid story it's also a great look at society and how we live and how we are so out of touch with nature even though we think we're smarter than that and that is absolutely not the case and um you you put a lot of parallels in there and i hope people take the time to to read it and think and, and look at it because i thought it was fantastic thank you guys thanks for thanks for having me on it was a lot of fun oh God, our pleasure. I just to add to that. I, the the one thing I would say is, um, I think that many authors. Uh, now, this is my uh, this is me getting to be the peanut gallery. Yeah. But I think that many authors um, try to inject a little bit of politics, a little bit of their thoughts on the world, uh, in, in in a bit of an uninformed way. And boy, this feels the opposite of that. Uh, and and that's why I've I've always enjoyed about your writing, Max. And, and why I was so excited to have this this conversation today, because it, 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 whether you agree or disagree with how Max perceives the world, it is very open, it is very transparent, and it is very obvious. And it is it is it is done in a way that is not meant to um, uh, to belittle another side. It is done in a way of uh, of inform information. Uh, it is done in a way of. Uh, I've done the research. Here's everything that transpires. Now, of course, you're probably going to get a little bit of my opinion because, hey, I'm the guy writing it. But at the end of the day, this is all based in 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 reality. 
and uh, and how things and I've just always really enjoyed that about your writing. Thank and so you. thank you. Uh, thank you for 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 writing it, and thank you for yeah. taking that that. And position. thank you for taking the time to sit down with us. And we are truly fans, so this was amazing for us uh, for you to take the time and talk to us today. Well, before we go, I'm gonna we, we have to make sure we talk about just one one more thing. Sure. Uh, when you guys are choosing your machete, yes. Uh, I want to make sure that you that it's what's called the full tang, which means that the steel goes all the way down the handle. And that this was is very big. Important. That was big in your book. Yes, because there's a lot of these sort of you know male fantasy macho machetes that get sold online, which are really just toys. Don't buy a toy. Buy a tool. Buy something that is meant to be used every day, because that's going to be the thing that saves your life in a zombie play. There you go. That's amazing. Amen. From Amen. from the mouth of babes right there, from the man. <laughs> so thank you again so much. And Nation, you've heard it. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more Hysteria 51. Oh, John, what a fantastic interview. I mean, I don't know how, how good Max was or you no, were. No, I mean but me. I, I, what a fantastic interview I just gave. Oh, okay. <laughs> <That's what I'm laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, what a gracious and great guest. And an incredibly intelligent. And I'm so glad that we we talked about how you can look at these movies, these books, these whatever you want, comics, anything, and they can be at first glance. This is a book about Bigfoot. This is a book about zombies. This is a book about vampires. But they can have these socioeconomical tie-ins and huge meanings that are above and beyond what you just expect out of them. And the beautiful thing about it, if it's done right, the way Max writes them and the way he was even talking about like Minecraft and thing is you can learn when you're not even realizing you're learning. And that's the best thing that you can do is when you don't even realize you're having a good time and then you come out and you go, Hey, I learned something today. Well, and I love the, well, we didn't draw the comparison in the interview, but I'm going to draw the comparison now. When you think about George Romero and his, the mirror that he would, you know, put up to society with, with his films, boy, doesn't that feel uh, akin to, to what Max does with his books? He definitely mentioned it. And I, I gotta think that that's a huge, like you said, it, he was aware of it, you know, like he said. I, I, what my, my point was that he didn't come out and full-heartedly no, no, say, no, no, no. I'm, just saying, I'm putting a mirror up to society. No, not at all, but it, it, it comes through very clearly that he is without Correct. throwing it down your throat, just like Romero did, and that is not easy to do. And I think that is, it shows to both of their talent, um, especially in the, the early, early, I think the best Ramiro is Dawn of the Dead. I think that's his masterpiece, but that's just me. And uh, yeah, Max is now taking the torch. And I'm a, I'm a, uh, all right. So if if we're gonna stop there, I gotta go. Night of the Living Dead. I get, and that's the 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 granddaddy. I just I really loved the. I mean, it was a whole coup de grace, the commerce and everything in in Dawn of the Dead. But um, I just loved it. I loved it, and I actually for as drastically drastically different than it was i enjoyed the remake that came out in what oh 2004 somewhere around then we're talking about the the ving rames vehicle 
I don't know. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was one of the. I'm, I'm joking. And- no, one hundred percent. One of my top ten favorite movies is the remake. Matt like, so a lot of these movies. A lot of these movies, like uh, I can, I can put in a top category in a genre, like the 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 OG Dawn of the Dead, like one of my favorite zombie movies. But like, if you're gonna throw it into the favorite movie overall genre, that's a, that's a much different conversation. Um, the the remake of Dawn of the Dead is definitely in my conversation for like top ten of, oh, see, of no, movies I all like, time. I just I, I like just the original that a lot movie. better than the remake. I do like the remake, but I I like that's just me though. I like the original better, but they're very different stories telling the same story. It's very interesting. If you're a Tom Savini fan, the original, he's in there. That's amazing. But anyway, you know that's the. Uh, <laughs> That's the nature of it. And man, this one, I don't, you know, go out and read this book. And it is, if you like gory horror towards the end, holy shit. And the fantastic part about that is he goes, I took it word for word from what like chimpanzees do to like bonobos or whatever they were that they're eating. Like it was just like, a, and then they did this to the people. Holy cow. And Nation, obviously we are fans of, of Max Brooks. We, we, you can go back to our, I don't know, was it the seventh episode? Somewhere around there uh, on zombies. And you can tell that we are fans of Max Brooks. That being said, if he had come off as a total buffoon, we would have called him on it. But what a what an awesome dude. Well thought out, introspective, great guy. Yeah, I call that the Brent Hand effect. Like if someone's like that, you know, it's just. Yeah, you, you know what? You know who else calls it that? No one. <laughs> That's okay. It only takes no one. one. It only takes one. Now, he was great. And, you know, it is amazing talking about his World War Z and the handbook and things like that. And, and the government and the military has said, like, wow, this is great. And even though it's being put towards this fictitious thing of zombies, we can use it for X, Y, and Z. And so he comes in and he teaches it because these are important things. And it's something that we talked about, like in our bug out bag episode and things like that. There are things you need to know that are universal that you can have it just because it works for a zombie doesn't mean that it doesn't work for a tornado or for a famine or a pandemic. If things get bad enough or Mount Rainier going off and, Shoving the Sasquatch into your neighborhood. I'm so pissed, Brent. I'm so pissed. You know why? Uh, uh, Our listeners can't see this, but if you were to, if you were able to see the video between Brent and I, whenever, whenever we're doing the show, you can see my library behind me. Like, so all my books uh, were, I'm I'm in the, uh, uh, the, the lower fourth studio plan B. And there's a huge wall of books and, and some other, you know, toys from the 80s, things like that. Anyway, I just turned around while you were while you were saying that, Brent. And right here, I knew it was close. Right here, here it is. Yeah. The zombie survival guide. I knew I had it right here. And I want like while we were talking, but then again, I I suppose I didn't need to fanboy out any further. Look at this. Um, I own your book. I, I own your, your book. book. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah, probably Probably doesn't make me a discerning uh, journalist. <laughs> yeah, I read that when it first came out, and I'm not going to lie to you. I also was sold that it's going to be a comedy because it was Max Brooks. I bought the book, and then I was like, this isn't, but I loved it. I loved what it was. And then when we got into World War Z, and I've told you this forever, World War Z, that's why I was so 
stuck on the movie is World War Z is one of my, if not my favorite book. And I've read it four times now, you know, complete. So that's the only book I've read that many times. I just really enjoy it. I was glad to actually have the conversation with him about the about the movie. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just to hear you very uh, very nicely said I had nothing to do with it. So, and that was a great thing. And, and Stephen King told him, Hey, good for you. You didn't got to worry about it. <laughs> well, and also like, I think in a weird way, he justified both of our experiences with the movie. Yeah. For you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, like, yeah, it's not, uh, a, a representation of the book in any way, shape or form. And if you like the book, uh, you you know, it has nothing to do with the movie. So for, for you, that was probably fulfilling. And, and for me, it was much more like, yeah, uh, I always said, you know, there's just two things with the same name that, and, and, and he's like, yeah, but once I stepped back from it, I could acknowledge the fact that it was, um, a good movie just had nothing to do with my book. And, and I agree with that. So that's our thoughts nation. Have you guys read? any of his books have you guys read devolution yet which is uh just fantastic i'm also he sold me on the minecraft book i'm i'm, I'm gonna go pick up his minecraft book and, and and give it a read are you gonna start playing minecraft no i'm not no i'm not but i am interested to to read about his his thoughts on it because the whole teaching aspect of it is really interesting to me and i've read i've liked everything of his that i've read so I got to do that. But what have you guys read? Have you guys read? Did you like his stuff? Did you not like his stuff? Well, I know we've talked about World War Z before. What are your thoughts on that? And please, on devolution, devolution, however you want to say it, what are your thoughts? What did you think? If you've read the book completely, we can even do a spoilers thread where no one goes in until, you know, if you, if you don't want spoilers, because wow, the ending is fantastic. I really, really liked it. So, John, if they want to talk to us about those things, how can they do it? I would go into Hysteria Nation. Hey, I've Hysteria heard of that. Hysteria Nation is our Facebook discussion group. Just go to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation. Yeah, and also if you're on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash hysteria51pod. That's our regular Facebook page. Also, Patreon, patreon.com slash hysteria51. You can find extra episodes up all nights, and you can get yourself T-shirts and pins and posters, host your own show, get a limited edition T-shirt and your face on our webpage or whatever you want to put on there. There's also sorts of, all sorts of cool stuff on there. Also, voicemails, 773-669-7277. Again, that's 773-669-7277, and we're going to get to those real quick. But if you forget any of that, hysteria51.com. Gofopedia, G-O-F-O-P-E-D-I-A dot com. They'll get you to the same place. Tell a friend about the show. Leave us a review. Five stars if you're nasty. Five stars if it's in your heart. I think it is. John, what's your parting thoughts? What's your parting words? What's your wisdom for the folks at home? My wisdom would be go read that book. Uh, it's a really, really well-written book. Uh, if you're not familiar with Max Brooks in general, Go read World War Z. Yeah, and if you're not a reader and you want to get into it, the audiobook, it's got Judy Greer, Nathan Fillion, Kimberly Guerrero. I mean, yeah, yeah, it has yeah. got a it's fantastic great. cast, of course, Max Brooks himself, and uh, it's about nine hours, so get yourself a nice car ride, listen to it on your ways back and forth to work. That is a fantastic, as long as you finished our entire Well, I mean, where are they working nine hours, man? Come on. You don't eat it in one sitting. That's one that you look forward to. You lead, you listen for a half hour, you go to work. You listen for a half hour, you're home. The next day, you start, rinse, and repeat. You're ready to go. <laughs> I only eat in one sitting. That's true. 
that's true. Everything. Just bring it on. Either it's there or it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right. So that's our thoughts. And that has been the fantastic Max Brooks. And go to the show notes and we'll have links to everything for you. With that said, I've been Brent. I've been John. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite. Join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hello, everyone. I'm Danny Pellegrino. I'm Jenna Brister. And we are back for season two of a very merry, iconic podcast. We're going to be diving into your favorite holiday movies, recapping them, and going on a few tangents. Yes, and it's the end of the world as we know it. So why not close out 2020 with a bunch of episodes of Holiday Recap with us? So we hope mm-hmm. everyone grabs a cup of eggnog. And a fistful of candy. Cook that bird and Doritos. The oven. We don't care what you're into. Just join us. Grab your bed wine. Grab your couch cocoa. We're getting lit on the holiday movies. We'll be doing 10 recap episodes So subscribe to A Very Merry Iconic Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and find us on social media at A Very Merry Iconic Podcast on Instagram and we'll have all the updates there. ACAST ACAST, 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 